Chapter One of A Mayfair Magician, A Romance of Criminal Science. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dan Grzynski. A Mayfair Magician, A Romance of Criminal Science by George Griffith. Chapter One. Enstone Manor, one of the finest as well as one of the oldest estates between the Pennines and the North Sea, came into the possession of the late owner, Sir Godfrey Enstone, in this fashion. He was a younger son, but everyone said that he ought to have been the elder, with his handsome face and stalwart figure and high spirit, albeit the last was wont on occasion to flame up somewhat swiftly to anger. The heir and only other child was more of a throwback to some remote generation than the son in spirit, as well as in blood, of his own father and mother, for he was not only mean to look upon, but he was in disposition and nature everything that a gentleman ought not to be, secretive, underhand, revengeful, and as close-fisted as a Dutch miser. That, however, is not germane to the story, save in so far as it was responsible for the everlasting quarrels between the brothers, which ended when Archibald, the elder, managed to get Godfrey into terrible hot water with his parents over some youthful escapade, and received at his hands a thrashing so sound that Archibald received injuries from which he never quite recovered. Of course, Godfrey was deeply and sincerely penitent when he cooled down, and recognized what his momentary passion had led him to do. But his father would have none of his repentance, and so in the end he gave him five hundred pounds and his curse, and bade him never let him see his face again. Like most curses, that one duly came home to roost under the old roof-tree. Godfrey disappeared utterly for over twenty years. The old baronet and his wife died within a few months of each other of pneumonia following influenza. The heir succeeded, a soured and feeble misanthrope, who hated women and believed that all the girls of the countryside and in London were after his money and position, whereas no decent woman would have married him if he had been a duke and a millionaire. He killed himself with quack medicines and drugs in little more than a year, and then the solicitors set to work to find Sir Godfrey, as he was now, if alive. For two or three years nothing was heard of him and the estate was managed by trustees appointed by the court of chancery. Then, without any notice, he walked one day into the solicitor's office and explained that he had only heard of the deaths of his father and brother six weeks before in Hong Kong. On his return from a three years' exploring expedition in Central and Northeastern Asia. However, he had made his money. He was evidently very wealthy, and when he had established his identity and taken possession of the carefully nursed estates, he was one of the richest men in the North Country. But although there was no doubt as to his being Godfrey Enstone, all who had known him before his banishment agreed that no one could well have been more unlike what one might have expected Master Godfrey to grow up than the thin, grave, slightly stooping, parchment-skinned man who seemed to have little or no interest in life beyond his estates and his scientific studies, which some of his sporting neighbors looked upon with frank and openly expressed suspicion. 
There was, however, one exception to this rule. He brought back with him a fine, strapping, honest-faced young fellow of about twenty-two, whom all his friends at first hoped was his son. But the world soon learnt that he was really the son of an old comrade and fellow adventurer, who had lost his life in saving Sir Godfrey's. He had adopted him, and one of the first things he did when he got settled was to go through the legal process of giving him his name and declaring him his heir to the estates, which were unentailed and his own personal property. The title was to die with himself. He had proved that a father's curse, whether rightly or wrongly given, was a grievous burden to bear. His own wife and child had died together of plague fifteen years before on the anniversary of his banishment. Five years later, on the same day, his own life had been saved only at the expense of that of the only friend he had on earth. He had not a single blood relation in the world, and he had determined that the title should die with him, and the bloodline of Enstone ceased to exist. He had few friends, scarcely any at all in England, but as the postmaster at Enstone was well aware, he had a large circle of corresponding acquaintances scattered nearly all over the world, and of these, according to the experience of the postmaster, the most frequent and constant was a certain Professor Jenner Halking, who appeared to possess addresses in pretty near every corner of the globe. One morning, at breakfast, nearly two years after his return, Sir Godfrey said to his adopted son, who was known legally as Harold Docker Enstone, his father's name had been Docker, "'Harold, my boy, what do you say to a run-up to London for a few days? You want some new guns and hunting gear before the season, I believe, and you could have a look around and choose them for yourself.' It'll be better than having them sent on approval. With pleasure, Dad, was the reply. But of course you're going too. Oh, yes, said Sir Godfrey, with what was for him an unwanted eagerness. The fact is that I have just had a letter from Professor Halkine, and he tells me that he has at last made up his mind to give up wandering and pitch his tent permanently in England. He says his niece is growing up now, and he doesn't think it quite fair to her to keep on the everlasting trek any longer. At any rate, whatever that resolve may prove to be worth, he landed at Brindisi four days ago, and will be in London the day after tomorrow. Curiously enough, although we've been friends on notepaper and in the scientific journals for years, this is the first time we have been within about a thousand miles of each other. In this letter, he asks me to call on him at Morley's Hotel on Wednesday and at last make his personal acquaintance. Harold remembered, as he spoke, that Wednesday was the anniversary, as they called it, the black day of the year on which Sir Godfrey never began or ended anything of importance. But he did not share his feelings on the subject, although they had never discontinued the custom of putting on black ties on the day of his father's death. "'That is distinctly curious,' he said, laying down the paper he was reading. It ought to be a very interesting meeting for you, though I hope you'll like the professor personally better than I like those theories of his. Great man as he certainly is. I wonder what the niece will be like. Large and angular, most probably, with the muscles of a man and the complexion of a Jap. That's the worst of those traveling women. They're neither huggable nor kissable. Two days later, Mr. Harold Enstone had the best of reasons to alter this very sweeping assertion. 
Sir Godfrey brought back an invitation to dinner from his hitherto unknown friend, whom he enthusiastically described as a most charming man and a thorough gentleman, and warned him that he was to meet the possibly formidable niece. Harold, somewhat against his inclination, found himself forced to agree with him as to the professor. He was certainly a man of birth, breeding, and education, and in addition he possessed that indefinable air of at-homeness which only travel can give. But for all that there was something about him, an air of quiet, repressed power, which even suggested irresistible authority if once seriously exerted, which he found himself resenting during the first five minutes of conversation over the usual sherry and bitters. In addition to this, he possessed the most extraordinary pair of eyes that Harold had ever seen in a human head. They were very large, too large, in fact, for a man, and intensely luminous. They differed, too, in color with every changing light. Sometimes they were dusky and somber, almost to blackness. When their owner got animated, they brightened to a deep violet which at times paled slowly. When they looked towards the light, which they very seldom did, they were a greenish-gray, with frequent glints of reddish fire in them. To look directly into them for more than a momentary glance was not possible without a disquieting feeling, or rather suggestion, of possible submission to the control of the forceful soul which was looking out of them. At least, that was Harold's first impression of them. But when he went into the drawing-room, and he saw those same eyes set like glorious gems under a pair of dark, delicately curved brows, and lighting up the most exquisitely lovely face his own glowing fancy had ever dreamed of, his opinion suddenly changed again, both as to rainbow eyes and women travellers. "'My niece, Miss Grace Romanes,' said the professor, as the slender form and the royally poised head, crowned with its diadem of red-gold coils, bowed before them. When the introduction was over, Sir Godfrey looked at him with an expression which reminded him forcibly of his rash remark at breakfast the morning but one before. When Miss Romanus spoke, he had some difficulty in repressing a visible start, as often happens when one hears for the first time a voice of extraordinary sweetness. How the dinner and the couple of hours which followed at the opera passed, Harold never exactly knew. But when he got up the next morning with his soul full of the most fantastically delightful dreams, he first informed himself that he was little better than a driveling idiot, and then expressed the opinion at breakfast that girls like Miss Grace Romanes ought not to be allowed to go about loose. It was not fair to men who had eyes in their heads and blood in their veins. Sir Godfrey sympathized laughingly with him, and told for his comfort that he had asked Dr. Halkine and his niece to pay a visit to the manor for the purpose of comparing scientific notes. He suggested that if Harold felt that the proximity would be more than his fortitude could safely risk, a month's fishing in Norway would afford excuse for a dignified retreat. Master Harold decided to take the risk, and felt absurdly pleased with himself when a very few days later it developed into a delightful and yet harrowing certainty. The conquest of Harold Enstone was as rapid as it was complete and irrevocable, 
and it was accomplished before his fair conqueror appeared to have the slightest knowledge of her unconscious triumph she was a charming companion perfectly natural and unaffected as might be expected of a girl whose education had been begun and completed amidst the realities of life and the eternal problem of nature instead of the artificial trivialities which form the surroundings of the average society girl this gave her an added charm in his eyes which no other woman could have had his own life and education had been much the same and so from the beginning there was a bond between them of which as she afterwards confessed she must even then have felt the strength without realizing it he had one of those open natures which make anything like concealment or the most innocent deception irksome and even unbearable where friends are concerned and so as soon as he had made up his mind to the inevitable he went to his father as he always called and considered him and told him everything it so happened that on the morning of the same day dr halkine with whom sir godfrey had apparently become the fastest friends had promised to rent a snug little dower house on the estate so that he might settle down to the pursuit of his studies not only in absolute quiet but also in touch with a kindred spirit whose intellectual activities and scientific aspirations were practically identical with his own curiously enough as it seemed to him then the ardent lover did not find himself able to look with unqualified approval upon this arrangement despite the fact that it would give him the best opportunities for an almost ideal love-making in the first place he liked difficulties and this looked as though things were going to be made too easy for him in one sense and therefore perhaps in another impossible if miss grace ever got a suspicion that matters had been arranged this way again he did not like the doctor he was the only man he had ever felt uncomfortable with and that was probably because he was the only man of whom he had ever felt in any sense afraid he despised and for her sake reproached himself for this feeling but it was no use though out of deference for sir godfrey's great liking for him he kept his sentiments strictly to himself at the same time he thought it only fair both to miss romanes and himself that she and her uncle should be told frankly that he loved her and meant to win her if he could before they finally decided to settle in the dower house sir godfrey fully agreed with him and put the matter with perfect plainness before dr halkine who accepted the situation with a quite philosophical consideration for a natural infirmity of age and sex which interested him only as one of the inevitable phenomena of human life in its present phase whether or not he acquainted his niece with the state of affairs did not appear just then but the house was taken and the two guests remained at the manor till it was ready for their reception harold naturally accepted the decision as a tacit permission to press his suit openly and that he proceeded to do with such effect that within a month he felt justified in speaking out and asking miss grace to decide his fate for him she did so with a quiet gravity which at once delighted and puzzled him she gave him with most sweetly gracious earnestness permission to undertake the most entrancing of all tasks that a man can set himself to the winning of a half-willing maid but all through the conversation which meant so much to him 
he was haunted by a strangely chilling sense of impersonality in her manner she was as sweet and gentle as the most exacting lover could wish his mistress to be and yet there was a something wanting for which he was fain to account by the strangeness of her early surroundings and the unconventionality of her bringing up both sir godfrey and his now almost inseparable companion the doctor gave their approval and their congratulations but here again harold was mystified and in his father's case somewhat angered to discover the same element of impersonality the same suspicion of aloofness or mental detachment later on he told grace of this but she only increased his difficulties by turning those marvellous all-compelling eyes upon him each of them with a note of interrogation in it and saying in a sweetly exasperating tone of unconcerned inquiry i can't say that i have noticed anything uncommon in their manner but surely one cannot expect men who pass most of their lives in the actual presence of the greatest mysteries of existence to be very deeply interested in this little love affair of ours as the said love affair happened just then to be quite the most important matter for him within the limits of human concerns he entirely failed to agree with her he said so both verbally and otherwise and with that he was fain to be content until the fates should vouchsafe an explanation if ever they did of a mystery in the presence of which he was mentally speaking as helpless as a little child End of chapter 1